0: From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. I was up until the wee hours last night covering Rhode Island's primary. We had some expected results and a few shockers. Here to help me comb through what it all means is Adam Myers, an associate professor of political science at Providence College. We'll rub the sleep from our eyes and dissect the races after this quick break. Welcome back. I'm here with Providence College professor Adam Myers. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Oh, thank you, Ed. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: I'm sure you're drinking coffee uh, this morning because you're up late last night watching the results of Rhode Island's primary elections. Let's start with the governor's race. Governor McKee won a tourniquet tight race over former CVS executive Helena Folks and Nellie Gorbea. How did he do it?
1: I think he basically did it by uh, being an incumbent first and foremost, right, having that name recognition, by consolidating support from organized labor, and uh, quite frankly, by benefiting from the fact that uh, the opposition was split among three, four different candidates. Chances are pretty good that had all of the anti-McKee vote gone to one candidate, he would not be victorious today.
0: Yeah, how much did he benefit from union support?
1: My sense is that uh, quite a bit, especially the NEA endorsement, you know, I think, uh, you know, I know a lot of folks who are teachers who really pay a lot of attention to that. And the fact that he was able to get that endorsement in particular, I think was quite meaningful.
0: And how much does McKee owe the victory to his mom?
1: (laughs) Well, I think that uh, commercial early on did sort of endear people to him to some degree. I have no idea, but my guess is that had a a minimal impact, but, you know, maybe significant enough to get a few votes.
0: And this is just the latest close race for Governor McKee, right?
1: Right. I mean, this is his pattern. He consistently wins these very narrow races. But, you know, listen, in our system of government, one more than the next guy is all you need to be elected. And so, you know, he's he's done what he needs to do.
0: What did you make of the drama over folks trying to call to concede the race, And it it came in when he was live on TV, McKee was live on TV, and he he told Dade he wasn't going to take the call.
1: Yeah, I was, quite frankly, very surprised by that. I mean, it seemed like pretty bad form to me. I was trying to put myself in McKee's shoes, you know, being up on the podium, giving a victory speech and getting a call. When you're in the middle of something, I was trying to understand. Maybe it just sort of flustered him. But all the same, it's just not good form.
0: Yeah, let's talk about the folks surge. Just four weeks ago, a WPRI poll had her at 14 percent, trailing McKee at 28 and Gorbea at 25. How did she close to within three percentage points in such a short time?
1: I think, you know, it was a confluence of factors. One of the factors was that the Gorbea campaign sort of collapsed. And so a lot of voters who didn't want to vote for McKee searched for another candidate, and she was the logical one. And then, you know, she did very well in the debates, particularly the the, uh, closing debate last week, and she rolled up a whole bunch of important endorsements. And so those factors just sort of came together, I think, to give her a, a lot of momentum in the final week of the race.
0: You know, for a while, it appeared that the Secretary of State Daley Bay was going to win this thing. What happened in the home stretch?
1: Yeah, this was really one of the most remarkable collapses of a um campaign that I've seen in a long time. So, so again, I think it was a confluence of factors. Her campaign made a number of strategic errors, um, in particular that uh, TV commercial w- um, with the article by Max Stenhouse, right? I think- Right, uh, right, in the National Review. In the right? National, yeah, yeah, that really did not serve her well. <laughs> then there was the snafu with the Spanish language ballots, right, which she as Secretary of State is responsible for any elections in this state. And then there was the fact that, quite frankly, she sort of underperformed in the debates. I think all those things sort of combined to, you know, make her campaign sort of collapse.
0: Will this race feed the drive for ranked choice voting in Rhode Island?
1: I think that discussion has already started, right? We now have a the Democratic nominee for governor winning that nomination with, you know, 33% of the vote, you know, far, far below a majority. A majority of Democratic voters did not support him yesterday. And, you know, I do think this raises serious questions about, well, if we're in a Democratic political system where majority rules, how can we have this? Now, Ranked choice voting does solve that problem. It ensures that the winner of a primary or a general election has majority support. But it has a lot of problems, and so I think we're going to have a, a very robust debate in this state about that topic.
0: Yeah, I remember when Governor Chafee won with in a three-way or even a four-way race, there was discussion of ranked choice voting then when he didn't have too big a percentage. What was the discussion then, and what would be necessary to make that happen in Rhode Island?
1: I think that this has been a, an ongoing discussion which has heated up in Rhode Island because we have these very competitive Democratic primaries because we're largely a one-party state. Right. So the most important elections in many cases are the Democratic primaries. And there's more than two candidates running in these primaries. And so what routinely happens is the, you know, multiple candidates split the vote such that the winner emerges with only 33, 34 percent. And so, listen, if we wanted ranked choice voting for primaries in Rhode Island, we could probably do that via a simple legislative statute. If we wanted ranked choice voting at the general election level, we'd probably need a state constitutional amendment because the state constitution currently says that the winner has to have the plurality of the vote, meaning more votes than anybody else.
0: What are the odds that the legislature would pass ranked choice voting? I mean, the current system got them elected.
1: Right. Listen, I think it's going to be a long slog. Uh, There's definitely folks in the statehouse who are not going to be happy with the idea of completely overhauling our elections process. I think it will probably require a lot of public pressure. There will need to be a campaign built up from the ground up to put pressure on the legislature to make this change. That's the only way these kinds of things happen.
0: How many other states use it?
1: At the statewide level, at this point, it's just Maine, and then Alaska uses a version of it. And then, you know, there's New York, uh, the city of New York, not the state. They use it for their municipal elections. And then a variety of other municipalities across the country uh, use it as well. It's a reform that has become um, a lot more talked about in recent years. There were a few municipalities that have used it for a long time, but no state... Adopted it before Maine did, and Maine adopted it maybe four years ago. So, this is a, a new and up, in, up and coming reform.
0: So, Brett Smiley won the Democratic primary for Providence mayor last night. Since there's no Republican candidate, he's going to be the next mayor. What was the key to his victory?
1: You know, in following this race, I was struck by how the candidates didn't do all that much to distinguish themselves uh, to the voters in terms of actual policy. They seem to be sounding very similar notes on a wide range of issues that Providence is facing. And so I think basically what happened is that Smiley racked up um, large margins on the east side, where Vote did well in other parts of the city where the Latino population is, is larger, but not well enough to overtake... Smiley's east side strength.
0: What was the story in the General Assembly races in your mind?
1: I think the dominant story is that it was a very good night for establishment Democrats and for centrist Democrats more generally. And it was quite frankly, a horrible night for progressive insurgents. They racked up just a few wins in in races that were not terribly surprising to me. But in many of the races that we were paying attention to most closely, they just came up short.
0: Did any of the assembly leaders get knocked off?
1: No. So the assembly leaders did very well, right? Speaker Shikarchi easily dispatched his opponent. And more surprisingly, President Ruggiero, you know, completely clobbered Lenny Seo. That really surprised me, because two years ago, that race was, you know, very close. But clearly, Senate President got his act together this year. He's also running in a somewhat reconfigured district, may have been a little bit more favorable to him. The House Majority Leader, Blazyzewski, easily won. You know, so I think, you know, as a general matter, leadership did very well.
0: Yeah, what did you see as the biggest upset in the Assembly?
1: Quite possibly uh, the House District 9 race where Anastasia Williams uh, lost to Enrique Sanchez just because she is a 30-year incumbent. She's been there for a very, very long time. On the other hand, that, that district in the West End of Providence is, is one of the most left-wing districts in the state. So, you know, that, the outcome of that race was surprising, but not terribly so.
0: And how did the Rhode Island Political Cooperative do? They said at the outset of the campaign a year ago that they were going to take the whole effing statehouse.
1: Right. They clearly failed at that, and this is really quite interesting because – they had several election cycles, or I should say not the cooperative per se, but kind of the progressive insurgency in the state more broadly, had several election cycles in which they were making steady gains. And then they've just completely stalled this year. I think only three of their 20-something candidates won their General Assembly primaries, and two, I think, of those three primaries were incumbents who they were supporting. So on the whole, not a good night for them.
0: So we've been talking a lot about the governor's race, but national attention is gonna be focusing on the race for the second congressional district that uh, U.S. Representative Jim Langevin is vacating. How did Seth Magazine of the Treasurer do last night in the Democratic primary?
1: The outcome of that race would not have changed if we had ranked choice voting because he won with more than fifty percent, right? He easily dispatched all of his opponents. And you know, quite frankly, it seems to me that he largely emerges from the primary unscathed. His opponents in the primary didn't attack him all that much. It was a fairly sleepy campaign. And, you know, we saw, you know, even in the last weeks of it, that Magaziner was already sort of turning his attention to Fung, because I think his campaign reasoned that he had it in the bag. In a sense, the general election campaign has already begun. Just
0: this morning, Magaziner launched an ad, uh, an attack ad on Fung tying him to Trump and McCarthy. Uh, do you expect to see more of that? How will these two opponents, magazine and Fung, try to define each other?
1: Yeah, I'm expecting to see a whole lot more of that. The magazineer campaign is going to do their absolute best to nationalize the race to tie Fung to the National Republican Party. They've already done that. They're going to do more of it. The Fung campaign is going to have to straddle a fairly narrow fence. Um, They're going to have to sell Fung as kind of not your typical national Republican, kind of a more moderate Northeastern Republican of the variety that we Maybe would have seen decades ago, but at the same time, you know, CD2 includes the most rock-ribbed Republican parts of the state, you know, all those towns on the state's western border with very conservative voters. And he can't come off seeming completely like a rhino to those voters, right? I mean, if he, if he wants turnout to be high in those parts of the state, then he needs to sound like a typical Republican. So he's going to walk a line. That's right.
0: And didn't he have to do that in the last two governor's races?
1: He did. And uh, listen, he won Congressional District 2 in 2014. He was able to successfully walk that line then. Obviously, it's a different environment now in a slightly different district now. And it remains to be seen whether he'll be successful this year.
0: And why is the nation paying attention to this race? What, What is at stake here?
1: Well, obviously, what's at stake is control of the U.S. House of Representatives, which is, you know, incredibly important in and of itself. It's one of 435 races. So from that standpoint, you know, it's not super important, but every seat counts. But then sort of in a broader sense, I think this race matters to the Republican Party because right now there is not a single Republican member of the US House of Representatives from all of New England, right? Not one, the only Republican member of Congress from New England is Susan Collins of Maine. And so the Republican Party has just been completely wiped out in this part of the country and we're fun to win that would definitely suggest that the Republican Party has not been rendered extinct here. There is still some sort of hope for it.
0: And how much outside money do you expect to see flowing into this race?
1: A lot. Uh, millions, right? I think that's already happening, and I think we'll see a whole lot more of it. And uh, yeah, I think the folks on in the western half of the state, CD2, are going to see many more campaign advertisements from national groups than folks um, in the eastern half of the state.
0: And before you go, let me get your thoughts on the treasurer's race. It got kind of nasty. Why do you think former Central Falls Mayor James Theosa beat former Rhode Island Commerce Secretary Stephen Pryor?
1: I think because he was able to consolidate support from different um, important parts of the Democratic coalition, Latino voters, the progressive community, I think, generally supported him. They weren't thrilled about Pryor. He was able to rack up quite a few um, important endorsements as well. And so you kind of put those factors together. I think that that gets him to the 55% that he got.
0: All right, Professor, I hope you get some coffee or or even a nap today. Thank you for coming in.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Ed.
0: Can't get enough information about the Rhode Island primary? Check out our full coverage in Globe, Rhode Island. And do you have a wicked good Rhode Island accent? We want to hear it. Record yourself saying a sentence that proves you're from the biggest little state in the union. You can leave us a message at 774-643-2821 or email us a voice memo at rinews at Please include your name and where you're from. You might end up on the podcast. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. Ahmed Fitzpatrick, see you next week.